I'd like to welcome all of you to the beginning talk in our Lenten lecture series for 2020. The Sexual Revolution, the Catholic Church, and God's Plan for Life and Love. I'll start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, male and female, you created them. Lord, you have endowed us with great blessings. Physically, spiritually, mentally, and emotionally, you have blessed us in so many ways. You have in particular written in our very bodies and our very hearts your plan for life and love. We ask you to enlighten us tonight, to help us to understand your plan, to help us to also understand the ways in which, uh, unfortunately, errors have crept in through original sin. Uh, of course, the world of flesh and the devil. We ask you, Lord, especially to reach out and touch all of those who are struggling in some way, especially with the gift of sexuality. May you touch them, Lord, with your healing power. May you enlighten them and guide them. And may they be supported and encouraged and given a good example uh, by all of your disciples. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Just briefly, uh, the purpose for this year's talk is to help clarify things for all of you. As I wrote a couple weeks ago in the bulletin, this is not meant to be a series whereby we heap coals upon others who are not following the commandments in many and varied ways. This is instead an ability for us to understand what has gone wrong in many of the things that have occurred in regards to people's understanding of God's gift of sexuality, to understand what has gone wrong very often with many of us. Remember, we're all human, we're all affected by original sin. We are blessed by God to understand his plan, and hopefully we can be a blessing to others to help them live very happy, loving, truthfully loving, and fulfilling lives. So again, we are not going to shame, but we're going to properly identify what is wrong with some of the situations that we encounter today. Dr. Anne Maloney is Associate Professor of Philosophy at St. Catherine University. She is also an advisory board member for the Siena Symposium for Women, Family, and Culture. After receiving her PhD in philosophy from Marquette University, Dr. Maloney has written and spoken extensively on ethics, feminism, the philosophy of women, abortion, contraception, marriage, and sexuality. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Maloney as she offers our first lecture on the free love revolution. Okay, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, thank you, Father, and thank you, Brandon, for putting together this wonderful series, and I'm really feeling privileged to be a part of it, and quite taken aback by how many of you there are. Um, yeah, so welcome, everyone. Um, so I'm here to talk about the free love revolution, and um, when I was trying to decide how to start my talk, I came across a poem by Philip Larkin, who was at one time the Poet Laureate of Britain. He wrote a poem about the free love revolution. So I thought I'd start out by reading. It's very short. Um, it turns out that he was quite a fan of the free love revolution. And he locates the birth of the free love revolution in one specific event. So I'll read you the poem. Sexual intercourse began in 1963, which was rather late for me. 
between the end of the Chatterley Band and the Beatles' first LP. Up to then, there'd only been a sort of bargaining, a wrangle for the ring, a shame that started at 16 and spread to everything. Then all at once, the quarrel sank and everyone felt the same, and every life became a brilliant breaking of the bank, a quite unlosable game. So life was never better than in 1963, though just too late for me, between the end of the Chatterley Band and the Beatles' first LP. So apparently, Philip Larkin thought that the free love revolution began with the distribution of the birth control pill, which was in 1963. And he's not alone in that regard, is he? Neither is he alone in his conclusion that the pill brought the end of shame and the dawning of a quite unlosable game, although all that fun came, as he reports to us, sadly, too late for him. Now, anyone who wants to do so can Google the history of the sexual revolution, and we can all read about the impact of the pill or the Supreme Court's 1966 Griswold versus Connecticut decision that unmarried people could purchase birth control, or Roe versus Wade, or even the publication of Betty Friedan's Feminine Mystique. And these are all interesting moments in cultural history. However, I'm not a historian, cultural or otherwise, and Brandon knew that when he invited me here for this talk. So I'm not here to give a history talk, I'm a philosopher. And as a philosopher, I want to talk a bit about the thinking that delivered the sexual revolution to us. My primary goal tonight is to consider the relationship between the sexual revolution and the evolution of Western thinking about the relationship between the body and the soul. In pursuit of that goal, I hope to do several things. First, I will briefly critique the dualist vision of body-soul offered to us by the Enlightenment by examining the liberal feminism of John Stuart Mill. Next, I will turn to Marx's philosophy's materialist treatment of the body-soul dynamic, focusing especially on dialectical materialism. Now, I have to tell you at this point that I gave my first lecture this morning at 8 a.m. to a group of 20 extremely distressed-looking young women who did not want to be there, did not want it to be 8 a.m., and did not want to talk about Plato. And so I'm a little bit concerned that here I am at 8 p.m. using phrases like dialectical materialism with all of you good people who came here in good faith thinking you were going to hear about sex and not Marxist dialectical materialism. <laughs> Stay with me, and I'll try to make it worth your while. My examination of Marx's principles will include the argument made by Marxist feminists <clears throat> that Marx didn't go far enough when he claimed that nothing is natural. I'm going to outline liberal and Marxist thinking because I will argue that our contemporary culture has become a Frankensteinian melange of both, which is a major cause of our sexual confusion in 2020. We are a society that is willing to claim with dualism that our bodies are nothing, while at the same time somehow agreeing with materialism that our bodies are everything. I will then look briefly at contemporary sexual culture and point out examples of what I take to be this rampant sexual confusion using information gleaned from my own students and students at other universities. I will then conclude, finally, by imagining a way out of our current sexual chaos by turning away from both dualism and materialism and instead embracing, wait for it, hylomorphism. <laughs> that sounds exciting. As the sanest and truest way to envision the human person. So yes, let's get started. In 1869, <laughs> liberal thinker John Stuart Mill rocked the Western world with his publication of an essay called On the Subjection of Women. His groundbreaking essay applied the core beliefs of liberal theory to the status of women, including such core values as equal rights under the law. The right to vote, to work, and to own property, Mill argued, arise out of our status as rational creatures, and women are, after all, rational. 
It's wonderful that John Stuart Mill recognized women as beings with minds. But in basing equality and rights on the possession of minds, Mill and his liberal friends overlooked the body, considering it accidental and non-essential to the definition of the human person, something that philosopher Alison Jaeger calls normative dualism. This embrace of dualism in the Western intellectual tradition began with Rene Descartes, who set forth the mind as constitutive of the human person. Unlike Plato's dualism, in which soul does bring life to the body and so is connected to the body, Descartes' dualism severed that relationship entirely. Descartes took this position because of his starting point, which is that the most fundamental thing I know is the content of my own mind. From this point, he had to argue to the existence of the body in the world, the connection which is never explained. Descartes set the stage for the sort of dualism which gripped the Western world in ways that are still very apparent. Once Descartes argued that the body has no important relationship to the mind, that it is a machine, albeit a complex one, modern philosophers were left with three choices. They could accept dualism but be unable to connect body and mind. <clears throat> Otherwise, they could choose one part over the other. They could opt either for mind or for matter. In other words, philosophers who were unwilling to accept a dualism which is incoherent at its foundation had to choose to claim either that mind can explain body, idealism, or that body can explain mind, materialism. The stunning scientific advances of the modern era, not to mention common sense, militated against idealism in favor of materialism. And materialist philosophers were right to say that bodies matter. Yes. Reason is an important part of the definition of the human person, and women, rational beings that we are, are human too. But liberal theory's willingness to overlook embodiment has resulted in a false and sometimes dangerous vision of human beings as minds, who are free to treat our bodies as non-essential, easy to control, and disposable. Not only that, but claiming that men and women are equal because bodily differences don't matter actually ends up resulting in the assumption that the generic human person is a creature who ends up looking, thinking, and talking an awful lot like a male. The move away from dualism was justifiable, but when large numbers of scientists and philosophers turned from dualism to materialism, nothing got better. Dualism argued that the nature of a human being is to be rational, the body isn't important. There are, as we noted, problems with that claim, but at least dualists believe that there was such a thing as human nature. Not so materialism. For a materialist, human nature is a descriptive phrase without content. What philosophers have traditionally called human nature is the result of a complex interaction of biology and environment. All right, I'm going to move to Marxist materialism now. Marxist materialism continues to be extremely influential in academic and intellectual circles, at least in the circles I move in. <laughs> Marx argues that just as human biology has resulted in the development of certain social structures, so too have certain social structures resulted in the development of the facts of biology. For example, as uh, Friedrich Engels said, the hand is not only the organ of labor, but it is also the product of that labor. In other words, we don't have hands because God created us to have hands because we would have to use tools to develop our reason because we're not animals that operate mostly by instinct. Oh, no. We have hands because through um, an accident, right, a genetic accident, some people were born with curious little flippers that turned out to be super useful for staying alive long enough to have sex and get their genes into the next generation where those little flippers became more and more pronounced. And yes, I'm talking about Darwinism and natural selection. Um, 
The idea was that we have thumbs, we have thumbs, because it turned out to be useful, it was an accident that turned out to be useful, and then got reproduced. So as we used our opposable thumbs, they became more and more developed, so our environment influenced the development of our thumbs, but our thumbs, because now we could do use tools, influence the development of our environment. So there's nothing natural or God-given about having opposable thumbs. It's an accident of biology and environment. So the Marxist view is that what we've traditionally called the human person is the same thing as this opposable thumb, a complex interaction of biology and culture. Many contemporary feminists have embraced Marx, and they fault him only for not carrying his own insight far enough. If the hand is socially constructed, that is the result of biology versus environment, then so is the womb. Marx failed, they claim, to extend his vision to the domestic division of labor in the home. Alison Jaeger, again, contemporary feminist, speaks for much of contemporary academic feminism when she says, the conclusion is not simply that human biology and the forms of social life are more cultural and less natural than biological determinists suppose. It is rather, and I italicized and bolded this line in my talk, so imagine that. <laughs> Where human nature is concerned, there is no line between nature and culture. In other words, my body is everything. There is no soul. There is no immaterial mind. Everything is material. The only real thing about human beings is our matter. The body is everything, and the body is plastic and malleable. It is socially constructed by power dynamics in society. According to Marxist feminists, which is what most academic feminists are, men have power, and that's why women have wombs. It is mistaken to claim that women naturally lactate or that men naturally grow facial hair. Natural is a word without a referent. What we call natural is, in fact, socially constructed. And women have been constructed under conditions of oppression. Just as a farmer in Iowa might breed chickens to produce more white meat, women have been bred to do the dirty work of reproducing the patriarchy. And I just wish you could all see your faces right now. <laughs> sense you don't agree. <laughs> you might be happy to know that my students often look just like this when we get to this part of the book. Um, since there is no such thing as nature or the natural, these feminists argue strenuously that no social unit is more natural than any other. Since everything is socially constructed, right down to the level of human biology itself, certainly human social organization is socially constructed. <clears throat> Some of the practical outcomes of this belief are, as Jagger puts it, this is a quote, no social activity or form of social organization is any more natural than any other. Male dominance is no more nor less natural than female dominance. It is not more or less natural for mothers to rear children than for fathers to rear children. Heterosexual intercourse is not more or less natural than other forms of sexual activity. Giving birth in a field is not more or less natural than giving birth in a hospital or even than providing an ovum for a test tube baby." Close quote. We have managed to become a culture in which people believe the body is everything, Marxist materialism, and yet also that the body is nothing, dualism. Sometimes the same person believes both things, and certainly the culture as a whole acts as if it does. One is reminded of George Orwell's 1984, which defined doublethink as the power of holding two contradictory beliefs in one's mind simultaneously and accepting both of them. 
Our culture today swings between these two philosophies, seemingly unaware of the impossibility that both could be true. Women and men treat their bodies as tools of their reason, appendages that can be manipulated and controlled at will, with no negative consequences to their mind and hearts. If I have a body that gets pregnant, there's a fix for that. If I have a body that gets pregnant despite my best efforts to fix it, there's a fix for that too. If I use my body as a personal whoopee cushion and have sex with anyone who looks plausible, well, it's just my body. It's not my mind. It's not my heart. It's not my soul. There is no soul. Philip Larkin, in his poem, imagines the wonder and joy of disconnecting sex from procreation. What fun, what pleasure. And yet, it isn't 1963 anymore. It's 2020. And an awful lot of people aren't having any fun. In fact, people are miserable. The two most prescribed medications at colleges and universities in 2020 are the birth control pill and antidepressants. What happened? And that brings me to part three of my talk, where we are today. Where I am is teaching philosophy, as I've done for over 30 years, at St. Catherine University. St. Kate's is a fantastic place for anyone who wants a sense for how the whole my body is nothing but also everything philosophy is going. Not well. The young women I encounter often can't name what has gone wrong in their lives, but they know that something has gone terribly wrong. Last semester, I taught a course called Philosophy and Film. In the first part of the course, we examined marriage through the lens of what Harvard philosopher Stanley Cavell calls the comedies of remarriage. Hollywood films from the 1930s and 40s, such as The Awful Truth, Bringing Up Baby, and It Happened One Night. Cavell points out that these films portray women and men as good for each other. They teach each other, they learn from each other, and they have, as one of the characters says, some grand laughs. In the second part of the course, things get a bit grimmer. Here we examine what Cavell calls the melodrama of the unknown woman. And these films, in these films, the male is far from a benign presence in the woman's life. Indeed, he is a malignant influence, destroying the woman either deliberately, the film Gaslight, <clears throat> for those of you who are familiar with it, or by brutally and indifferently discarding her after having sex with her. And one of the films is Letter from an Unknown Woman. In our discussion last term of Letter from an Unknown Woman, my students could barely contain their contempt for the female lead, Lisa. How could she be so stupid? Why was she so self-sacrificing? Why did everything have to be about him? Why didn't she have any self-respect? But having seen this response before when I had taught the course, I was prepared this time. <laughs> I handed out and read with them an article written last year by a student at Middlebury College. This was not Joan Fontaine letting herself be victimized by Louis Jordan in 1942. This essay had been written by their peer, a young woman named Leah Fessler. I'm going to read a few brief excerpts from the essay, not the whole essay, as I did with them. Few. <laughs> but I think it's informative. So I'm going to start reading um, excerpts from the essay. At Middlebury College, I lived a double life. On the surface, I was successful. I was surrounded by diverse intellectual friends. I led a popular student website and was active in the arts and athletics. I loved learning, and I made Phi Beta Kappa my junior year. I'm also a white, straight, cisgendered female. If you're thinking, please, you're so privileged, you have nothing to complain about, you're right. But my internal life was characterized by paralyzing anxiety and depression. I judged myself harshly to the point of disgust. 
I drove myself to excessive exercising and near anorexia. I felt this way because of men, or so I thought. While there was a major gulf between my public self and my private one, the one thing that remained consistent were my politics. I told myself that I was a feminist, despite subjecting myself to unfulfilling, emotionally damaging sexual experiences, and I believed it too. I soon came to believe that real relationships were impossible at Middlebury. I convinced myself that I didn't want one anyway. It wasn't just the social pressure that drove me to buy into the commitment-free hookup lifestyle, but my own identity as a feminist. The winter of my junior year, I asked Ben, a quiet, smart philosophy major with bright blue eyes, to a wine and cheese party. We saw each other for a few months. On weekends, I would text him around 10 p.m., somewhat drunk. We'd meet at one of our dorm rooms, debate philosophy and Fleet Fox's lyrics, talk about our families and aspirations, and then have sex. Give or take some weeknight Netflix watching or walks in town, I cycled through this routine with at least five guys by senior year. When Ben fell asleep, I'd pretend to doze off as well. During the night, I'd pull the covers or brush his toes, craving an arm around my waist. I'd analyze snippets of our conversation. Sometimes I'd leave an earring on his bedside table when I left before he woke up, a reason to come back. With time, inevitably, came attachment. And with attachment came shame, anxiety, and emptiness. My girlfriends and I were top students, scientists, artists, and leaders. We could advocate for anything except for our own bodies. We won accolades from our professors, but the men we were sleeping with wouldn't eat breakfast with us the next morning. We were desperate to know what it felt like to be wanted, desperate for a chance at intimacy. I wished that I could be like the guys who seemed not to care at all. Months after things had ended between us, Ben said, I didn't think of you as a human being while we were hooking up. If this was sexual liberation, it was hard to understand how it was helping women. Most Middlebury women were playing the game, yet almost none of us enjoyed it. I went on to publish my thoughts online, and stories from students around the country came pouring in. It was clear we were far from alone. The truth is that for many women, there's nothing liberating about emotionless, noncommittal sex. The young women I spoke with were taking part in hookup culture because they thought that's what the guys wanted or because they hoped a casual encounter would be a stepping stone to commitment. I realized that sex is inextricably linked to emotions, trust, curiosity, and above all, self-awareness. To attempt to separate emotions from sex is not only illogical, but impossible for almost all women. When I finished reading Ms. Fessler's piece, there was dead silence. Well, I said, why so quiet? What are you thinking? One of my students blurted, I feel totally called out. <laughs> Meaning what, I asked. Meaning, I've done this stuff, and this is how I feel. I just never admitted it. There was a tsunami of assent after that student spoke. I think every student spoke that night. They were awake, they were aware, they were mad. And I knew this because I'd been around for a while. <laughs> Here are some things, sorry, that my students have told me over the years. When you're there 30 years, you hear a lot. <laughs> this weekend, I went to my first college party, and I hit it off with a guy. So we went into the back bedroom where the coats were and started kissing. But then he reached down, moved my panties aside, and penetrated me. So I guess I'm not a virgin anymore. Another young woman came to me to explain some absences. She was in tears. She had been diagnosed with genital warts, and her doctor told her that she may have trouble conceiving children in the future. She had always, she told me, 
assumed she would get married and have a family someday. And the worst part is, she wailed, I'm not even promiscuous. I've only had sex with six guys. She was 19. Once in a writing assignment about Socrates and the allegory of the cave, a student wrote that she decided to make better choices in her life <clears throat> after she woke up one morning in a trailer covered with scratches naked next to a man she didn't remember meeting. This is St. Kate's. This is a private Catholic college for women. I just thought I should just remind us all of that. A 17-year-old student in a class discussion said that her boyfriend, with whom she is sexually active, wanted to slap her during sex, but she took a stand and said no. Another student wrote in an in-class writing that she had lost her virginity to her boyfriend and she felt terrible, but she was sure it was just cultural guilt. She's an international student. And it was probably an empowering experience, but she just didn't feel that way yet. Also, her boyfriend had been standoffish ever since, which worried her. Women have never been more sexually liberated than these women are, or so they are told. No more are they shackled by ridiculous bonds like commandments, moral rules, words like chastity. We're free, they shout. Why are we so miserable? They whisper. One woman went to her health center because she feared she had bronchitis. In perusing her health history, the physician said, I see here that you are a virgin. Yes, she responded, wondering what that fact might have to do with her persistent cough. Would you like to be referred for counseling about that? The student wondered if she should in fact consider her virginity a psychological issue. Once the culture embraced non-marital sex and made it the norm, women who do not want to have casual sex often feel like outcasts, like weirdos. Actual letter written to Dear Abby, you can find it, it's in a book called The Best of Dear Abby, reveals the attitude that women are encouraged to take towards sex in their own bodies. Dear Abby, I am a 23-year-old liberated woman who has been on the pill for two years. It's getting pretty expensive, and I think my boyfriend should share half the cost, but I don't know him well enough to discuss money with him yet. <laughs> I teach an occasional seminar in philosophy and addiction, where we think about what the experience of addiction teaches us about embodiment. One of the books we discuss is Caroline Knapp's book, Drinking, A Love Story. The students adore this book, and we have great conversations in class. I'm sorry, the chapter that generates by far the most passion is the one on drinking and sex. Knapp speaks honestly about the key role that alcohol played in her decisions to have sex in college, sex that she regretted and that made her feel terrible. My students love Knapp's book, and just as in the philosophy and film class, are gratified to have something powerful named for them. Knapp says that despite her freedom to drink as much as she wanted, this is the memoir of an alcoholic, and have as much sex as she wanted, she never felt free. My students get that. I'm just gonna go out on a limb here and suggest that the reason, I see all these newspaper articles, why are college women binge drinking? What's happening? Why are we suddenly binge drinking all these college women? Well, it might be because they have a lot of closeted sorrow about how they're living their lives. So St. Kate's is a women's college and so I have very limited contact with young men. I know enough, though, to suspect that none of this is good for the men either. Have, I think some of us have probably tuned in lately, paid attention to the lives of our young men these days, say be, men between the ages of 20 and 30. How are they doing? Not well? Before the development of the pill and the separation of procreation uh, from sex, you know, sex was a pretty weighty proposition. And when women had sex, they demanded of men a high degree of commitment and responsibility first. And that means men tended to get married and stay married. They got jobs, real jobs, that could support a family. Living in their parents' basement until they found themselves wasn't that much of an option, 
And guess what? They were happier. Increasing numbers of young men are showing up at 12-step meetings admitting an addiction to pornography. The insidious ease with which men can access pornography, coupled with a culture that encourages men to treat women as objects for their use, has men in its thrall. More and more, men are finding it too hard to meet and spend time with actual human women, with our flaws and quirks and imperfections. The women they can encounter in porn are always sexually alluring, always eager for them, and always interested in whatever perverse activity they can dream up. That's the line where I worried most about sounding like a crabby old lady. <laughs> you and your perverse activities. <laughs> Men know on some level they're in dangerous territory. They're at 12-step meetings. They're crying out for help because they know what emptiness feels like. So the world we have created for these young people is a world which welcomes every sort of sexual behavior except chastity. And young people are wounded, and almost no one is helping them to look for the source of the bleeding. The women who hook up feel awful and have no idea why. It's hard to heal when you don't know how or where you've been damaged. And the despair and shame that these women feel is real. The young women and men of today are the victims of a culture that has embraced the body is nothing, the mentality of liberal thinking, and the body is everything, the mentality of materialist thinking. No wonder we're a mess. Luckily, I have an alternative to propose. It's the alternative of hylomorphism. The philosophy of the human person espoused by Aristotle, Thomas Aquinas, and the Catholic Church, and also some alive people. I originally had a whole list of living people who endorse hylomorphism, but I decided time is short. Um, so <clears throat> it doesn't roll off the tongue, does it? Hylomorphism. It comes from two Greek words, hule, which means material, and morphe, which means form. Aristotle argued that the substantial form of the human is the intellective soul. It is by means of the intellective soul that we experience an intellectual way of existing in the world as embodied creatures. Our intellectual soul permits us to think about absolute principles and act as responsible agents. It allows us to know not simply that things are, but on an even deeper level, what things are. It gives us the ability to paint and write poetry and build houses and fall in love and do science. Dualism asserts the preeminence of mind over and against the body and brain. Materialism says that all we are is brain. We are complex organisms. Hylomorphism says no to both dualism and materialism. To the dualist, the hylomorphist says that my soul and my body are not separable, except through death. Our bodies and souls are grown together, forming a concrete whole who has powers and capacities greater than the sum of our parts. Dualists got something right. Our substantial forms, our souls, possess a type of freedom from the body that persists through time. But dualists also got a big something wrong. In fact, our material component, our bodies, are absolutely essential to our substance. Because the very reason of, for being, for our form, is to inform some matter. Materialists got something right. Materiality is important, and the matter of our bodies is essential. But materialism got something wrong. The real presence of personal subjectivity experienced by each person can be accounted for only if there is an intellectual soul. In other words, there is something about us that is properly transcendent, non-reducible, and subjective. We are able to reach beyond the material constituency of our corporeality. Wow, that's a lot of big words. In a non-physical, spiritual way, especially when we come to know anything. When we say, I, our experience is that there is truly an I to speak of. 
something in every human person that is the center of our personal activity. All of these activities and capabilities and powers are themselves non-material, yet they do require, at least in part, that we be embodied as well. Hylomorphism explains things materialism can't explain. When a doctor studying epileptic patients observes um, brain surgeries, he noticed something huge. The patients were anesthetized but awake because they had to make sure while they were trying to fix the epilepsy that they didn't accidentally knock out you know, his powers of judgment or sight or hearing or anything like that. So the patients were anesthetized but awake because the surgeons needed to keep them talking. Not, so they weren't cutting any of the wrong tendons or whatnot. So the surgeons are located behind the patient's uh, field of vision. And when they probe a certain part of the brain, the patient's arm would go up. The patient would see that happen and say, I didn't do that. When asked to raise his arm, he would do so. He'd say, I did that. <laughs> now on the brain scans, those two actions of raising his arm were physically identical actions. But on one of them, the patient said with complete certainty, I didn't do that. Holomorphism accounts for that non-physical but quite real experience of I. On the other side, Hylomorphism accounts for the reality that rape is devastating. No woman who is raped ever responds with, oh, well, that wasn't me. That was just my body. She knows it was her body, and it was certainly her. Hylomorphism accounts for that quite real experience of oneself as bodily. So I think a strong theoretical case can be made for the truth of hylomorphism. Human experience verifies that hylomorphism is true. My body is not something I haven't used. It is part and parcel of who I am. I am not a spirit using this flesh. I am this flesh. The example I have here is when I give a talk, I do not think a thought and use a gesture. And I realize before I read that, it's like, oh, I'm gesturing. I've probably been gesturing in the course of this talk. I did it again. <laughs> but I'm not saying to myself, oh, big moment, time for a gesture. <laughs> I'm gesturing before I even think. I mean, it's my thinking is this. When I was a much younger woman and my children were very little and they would cry out in the night, I didn't wake up and think, oh, time for my feet to engage with the floor. I was halfway across the room before I even realized I was moving. And I couldn't say, well, my body seems to have taken off without my soul. <laughs> I moved. I moved. When contemporary culture tells us that our bodies are nothing, it's telling us that we're free to engage in sexual activity for pleasure. Sex will mean whatever we want it to mean. If we want it to mean commitment, marriage, family, it can mean that. If we want it to mean, hello, I'd like to experience a good feeling with you and probably never see you again, it can mean that. I, meaning my mind, get to decide what sex means. But remember Leah from Middlebury College? Even when she tried really, really hard to have meaningless sex, she struggled. Why? Because Leah isn't a mind in a box. She's an embodied spirit. Dualists denigrate the body, but it's just as wrong, says the hylomorphist, to do as materialists do and denigrate the soul. We are not pure spirit, but we are also not merely animals. We can understand a lot about ourselves as physical creatures by examining rats. I mean, they give rats Diet Coke, multiple amounts of Diet Coke, and rats die. <laughs> I'm sorry, I really have to do this. And then they say, but don't worry, because we give the rats like the equivalent of 12 Diet Cokes a day. 
And I think, oh no. <laughs> I am in some senses a sophisticated rat because I'm an animal, right? And if I keep drinking Diet Coke at this rate, it's not gonna go well for me. But we are not just sophisticated rats. Think about Leah from Middlebury College again. According to materialism, she's a complex organism, but she is an organism. But does she behave like an organism? Do any of us? Why do other organisms, say animals, have sex? To pursue a good feeling. When the act is completed, the animal is satisfied. Human beings, animals that we are, also have sex. Unlike animals, however, we realize there's a connection between this activity and procreation. Animals are not thinking, oh, that's a very attractive collie. Maybe if we get together, she'll have my puppies one day. They have no idea that there's a connection between those two things. And you know, they look really satisfied. <clears throat> not that I'm observing a lot of animals. <laughs> I suddenly realized how that sounded. I've read in a lot of books that animals are very satisfied after sex. Humans sometimes are not. Sometimes humans are really sad after sex, even technically good sex. Humans are not fulfilled by the physical sensations of sex. We long for oneness, for union, for feeling known. And this example of sex illustrates the larger truth I'm getting at here. Animals have bodies, we have bodies, but we don't have bodies in the same way that animals do. We do a lot of things that other animals don't do. We worry about death. We feel pulled between good and evil. We found universities, we build cathedrals, we tell jokes. Our souls can do things that matter cannot do, such as abstract and understand. And a faculty that operates in an immaterial fashion is not itself material, thank you, Thomas Aquinas. We are embodied spiritual beings, both are essential. Enlightenment thinking does not understand the importance of embodiment, but materialist philosophy does not recognize the reality of the human soul. We need a philosophy that gives proper weight to both body and soul. Now think about what all this means for the sexual revolution. Our bodies are spiritually and uh, philosophically, sorry, and spiritually important. Now sometimes people say, oh, Catholicism acts as if bodies are dirty. No, Catholicism acts as if bodies are sacred. What I do with my body, I do with my very self. God willed us to be embodied in the ways that we are, and we will be embodied in eternity. When women and men are sexually intimate, pregnancy can happen. Women have historically been careful about sex because of that natural fact. For most of human history, yes, sex has been inextricably linked to babies and the creation of families. The implications of sex have until very recently, Philip Larkin will locate that date as 1963, been life-changing and sometimes lifelong. But contemporary culture has embraced contraception and abortion because, well, why not? My body's nothing. It's something I use and control and manipulate, and what of it? At the same time, my body's everything. It's all I am. And what I do with my body has no eternal consequences. I have no soul. Life is temporary. Death is final. I might as well go for all the gusto I can. The idea that sex is intrinsically connected to the creation of families is startling and foreign to this upcoming generation. I'm going to venture to say you really have no idea how startling and foreign it is to this upcoming generation. They are so used to thinking of sex outside the realm of procreation that it shocks them to imagine that they were, for most of human history, firmly linked, and that the culture had a definite set of public expectations around sex and marriage. 
My students can't get over the phrase shotgun marriage. Why would anyone do that? What if they don't get along? <laughs> they got along. Um, I taught an ethics class. I teach, every time I teach ethics, actually, I teach uh, natural law ethics, Thomas Aquinas. And Thomas talks about unintended versus intended consequences. Now, when he talks about unintended consequences of my actions, he makes a distinction. There are unintended consequences that are naturally connected to the act, like pregnancy after sex, and unintended consequences that are not naturally part of the act, like sexually transmitted diseases after sex. I'm not exaggerating. My students cannot understand how these are different. In their mind, I don't want to be pregnant, and I don't want an STD. If either one happens, that was unintended, and it's not natural because I didn't want it to happen. The connection between marriage and family has been obscured in our culture because we can use reason now to ma manipulate our bodies away from procreative sex. And we can justify the rampant sexual activity that has resulted by declaring ourselves free of all that religious crap, crap about immortal souls. The connection between sex and family, though, is part of the natural law, and our imperfect yet real knowledge of that law can show up in interesting ways. For example, when I bought my older daughter her first Barbie doll, she said, this is a nice mommy doll. Where's the dad? I thought, oh, fine. She must mean Ken. So I bought her a Ken. Luckily, her birthday is in January. So she got the Barbie for Christmas, and she only had to go two weeks before she got her Ken. She said, this is a nice daddy doll. Where are the babies? <laughs> babies, I wanted to say. This doll is for you to dress up in fashions and send to parties so she can meet Ken and kiss him and stuff. What's the matter with you? Then I heard that in my head before I actually said it. And so to my daughter, I said, well, I guess we better buy Barbie a wedding dress, um, which we did. The Catholic philosopher Thomas Aquinas realized that hylomorphism is the theoretical underpinning of the truth expressed in Genesis that we were created imago dei in the image and likeness of God. We were, created, we were not created to image God only through our souls. Our bodies also reveal who we are as persons. Above all else, our bodies reveal us as beings made for each other. Just as the Trinity is an active relationship of self-forgetting love between persons, human beings image God in the activity of self-giving love, and our bodies tell us how to do that. We were made for each other, and marriage is one powerful way to say that truth. Just as God willed us for our own sake, out of love, we image God when we will the other for his own sake, when we love the other not just for what he can do for us or give to us, but simply because he is. In the poem I started with, Philip Larkin imagined that before the glorious day when we could separate sex from procreation and treat our bodies like the fun tools they are, sex was a grim wrangle for the ring, causing shame that started at 16 and spread to everything. Larkin thought that the brave new world, a world without religious stricture because we no longer believe in things like immortal souls, would be a great world indeed, that every life would become a brilliant breaking of the bank, a quite unlosable game. Well, he was right about some things. Sex is certainly not about the wrangle for the ring anymore. When I got married in 1987, and yes, that was a long time ago, people were visibly shocked when I told them that my mother told me that I should not get married until my future husband and I could support a family. Why would she say that, was the typical response. That's so mean. Well, the answer
answer my mother had in mind was pretty simple. She thought that marriage, the wrangle for the ring, existed because sex makes babies. But as for Larkin's claim that the result of our culture's disastrous coupling of dualism and materialism when it comes to sex, well, it turned out that that coupling turned out to be a very losable game. And the losses are many, and they are grievous. And I am done. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, for our culture, how to begin the bringing together of the, of the body and the heart in, in terms of sexuality. Because I agree with you fully, your analysis. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, so the questioner asked if I see any hope, any possibility that our culture is going to figure this out. Because she agrees that we're in kind of a mess in our um, seeing of the relationship between the body and the soul. But do I see any way that this is going to work itself out? And I guess my answer is I have to. Because, good Catholic that I am, I learned that despair is the gravest of all sins because it's the sin against hope. And so, um, but it's not just that. It's also, I think I see hope in the ways in which my students are starting to realize that what they've been given isn't working. Um, they're really only just starting to figure that out. They're not really naming it for themselves very well. But when someone else names it, like Caroline Knapp in the book Drinking, or that student Leah Fessler from Middlebury College, when they hear it named, they really do recognize it and they really do respond. So on my good days, I feel hopeful. And I also believe, I really believe what Thomas Aquinas said, which is that the natural law is written in our hearts. And it can be obscured, and it can be really obscured. But it's there. And I mean, that's why I told the story about my, my daughter and the Barbie doll. Because I do think that, th that we have an innate sense of what this is all about. And it kind of has to be pushed and shoved out of us. Um, and so I think it's there. It's dark, but it's there. And I think that one of the ways that I find out really fast that I'm lost when I'm out driving is when I hit a dead end. And I do hit dead ends way too often. Sometimes I end up in parking lots. That's another good way to find out I'm lost. And my point is that once people start really reaching the dead ends of these philosophies, um, they start to think there must be something better. The problem is that by the time we get to those dead ends, a lot of damage has been done. A lot. I mean, many of my students come from broken homes. And they've, they've been through a lot already by the time they get to college. Yeah? Would you say that possibly the I mean, I, I love your talk. But oh, thank, thank you. you. Um, thank you. Would you say that possibly the problem with sex in this society is more a symptom of a much deeper problem, hmm. namely the problem of relating to your fellow human being mm -hmm. as a human being, mm -hmm. i.e., in, in every, almost every arena today, the political, we do not see people talking to one another right. as human beings anymore. Right. It's conservatives, it's liberals, and this and that. Yeah. And I think what happens often with young people is this inability to simply relate mm -hmm. as people. So it then um, quickly uh, diverts 
to physical things and then to sex. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this question is, is it really about sex or is it just kind of a more systemic problem that we just have a lot of trouble relating to people as human beings, complex human beings with lots of feelings and thoughts and not just automatically going to, you know, like in political conversations, you're bad, I'm good. Is sex more of a symptom and maybe not the major problem? And I guess I would say I understand what you're saying about the problem. And I think, I mean, my experience from being around young people so much is that one thing they've never lost their talent for is their ability to spot hypocrisy. And one thing that really kind of saves me with my students in certain ways is that um, they see that, like, when it comes to my Catholicism, I, I don't pick and choose. I live my Catholicism. And um, they don't see a lot of that. I'm just going to put that out there. I mean, many of them have parents who say, well, we choose this, and we choose this, and we choose this. And then they think, well, the philosophy is you choose whatever you want. And they see that as hypocritical. And then they start to think, everything's a crock. Everything's a fake. Everything's just whatever you want to be true. And so I think there's some of that. That, people, that they're just like, they see the hypocrisy in conservatives, and they see the hypocrisy in liberals. They see hypocrisy. Um, but I do think that we have a problem relating to each other empathetically, and I don't think it's just young people. I know an awful lot of old people who have a lot of trouble relating to other people with compassion. I'm just going to say, I'm sad to say, I know some Catholics who have trouble relating to people out of some sense of compassion. I'm sure there are many times when I'm one of them. Um, <laughs> And so I think that's part of the human struggle. That's, that's sin. Um, and I think that sex is a part of it. But I also think sex is a big part of it, because we're sexed. And it's not our whole identity, but it's a big part of who we are. Male and female, he created them. You know. So I think that's a big part of, I think our bodies tell us who we are, and we are sexed. And that tells us something about who we are. So interesting question. Yes. Um, so myself. A celibate woman mm -hmm. of yeah. many, many years. Um, I have a hard time understanding what's going on within my Catholic women single peers mm -hmm. that are having sex, obviously, yeah. and then they're brokenhearted and then want to go cry to the priest mm -hmm. and throw it on them. And I just feel bad about that because, I'm sorry, it begins to be manipulative and then it spreads around and then everybody's trying to put her together with him. Mm -hmm. And it's a nightmare. Can it sounds like a nightmare. It is a nightmare. <laughs> nightmare. Can mm -hmm. you say anything about Yeah. That? And on the other side, what are you saying to... The non-Catholic women mm -hmm. are, you know, experiencing the hookup. Yeah. How do you gently guide them onto a good course, so yeah. to speak? So both in one. Yeah, really good questions. Um, the first question is, as a celibate Catholic woman, seeing her uh, single Catholic uh, women friends get involved in sex with men and then get their hearts broken and then feel all victimized and want to go off and cry and whine about it, and that's very frustrating. And then the other question, um, remind me. Non-Catholics, yes, because actually the um, Catholics aren't. Um, we're, we're le Catholics are less than fifty percent of the students at St. Kate's now, so I really have a mix. The first question is, um, you know, again, I just think that that's a tendency that human beings have in general, that we tend to whine a lot, <laughs> and we whine a lot about our own mistakes. But of course, that's the human condition. We screw up and we whine. Think how hard it is. No, it's not hard for God, I know, because he's God. But if God were anything like us, think how hard. We do that to him all the time, don't we? 
I mean, we screw up and then we say, oh God, I'm so unhappy, I don't know why. Oh, I know why, <laughs> right? But the other question about um, non-Catholics, that's why I thought it was important in this talk to talk as much as I did about hylomorphism. Because hylomorphism is the truth of the human person. It's not a truth for Catholics, it's not a truth for Protestants, it's not a truth for Islam, it's not a truth for Jewish people, it's a truth for everybody. It's a philosophic truth that makes the most sense of who the human person is. And so I don't even have to worry about what their religion is or what their spiritual commitments are or what their, all I have to do is in philosophy and the human person present hylomorphism and hope that they see that that makes way more sense than dualism and materialism because it's the truth of the human person. And so that's kind of how I deal with it. Yeah, any other questions? Yes. Um. Is there a way to have a positive relationship with someone and to, to be able to have sex and still be happy and enjoy your time with that person? Yes, and her question is, is there a way to have sex and enjoy it and be happy? And you know, I think that the way to answer that is to remind ourselves of what I was talking about when I was talking about hylomorphism. Because I think that According to a hylomorphist, what you're doing when you have sex with someone is you're saying, I'm giving you everything that I am. I'm giving you my body, my heart, my soul, my future, because I'm at least theoretically a fertile person, which means that the sexual act may result in a baby. And so I'm really kind of giving you everything that I have. And I think that when you make that kind of a commitment, you give that person literally everything that you have and everything that you are, um, you I think that what makes it happy and what makes it good is that you do that in the context of a relationship that says that. And so I think what the church teaches makes sense of that hylomorphic view because the church says when you're saying with your body, I am yours completely, you should have that, a framework of a relationship where you've actually said that. And that's the marriage vow, right? Because you say, I will give myself to you completely. And the only way that makes sense is if I'm saying, I will give you my, my past, my present, and my future. And so um, I think that's, that's, when, that's when it works. That's, that's when it's good. Let's thank Dr. Moni one more time. First, thanks everyone for coming. Mm -hmm. uh, this is another great turnout, a really great start to this series. Um, join us next week for Dr. Deborah Savage from Contraception yes. to Abortion on Demand. Father. We didn't know how many people would show up. The old saying is true, sex sells. <laughs> Also, we've learned something, because we know it's an older audience, so I can say this. Philosophy is sexy. It's amazing. Thank you. And another thing, who knew that we could get something so amazing out of Barbie dolls? You have redeemed my understanding of Barbie dolls. Excellent. Amongst other wonderful things we've learned in tonight. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Holy Father, we thank you for the gift you have given us in our bodies and souls. Help us, Lord, to always be living in accordance with your plan, with right reason, 
and also to give you glory in everything we think, say, and do. May we be unified also with those that uh, share the same faith and also especially unified in our marriages. May we always give you glory by living our lives beautifully with great meaning and showing forth your goodness and truth in this world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a good night.